Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Ephesians chapter 4. Once you found that, if you would be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. So we read his word together. So Ephesians chapter 4, we'll start on that very first verse where we've been spending the entire year. And we'll read down through the sixth verse and we'll see what God has to say to us today. It reads like this, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, enduring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in our one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our time in Sunday school, through our fellowship together, through the singing of the hymns, Father, through our worship time with our children before they went out. Now through such a beautiful song that was sung saying, remind us, remind us of who you are and who we are in you. And so, Father, now we have opened your word. We have read from your inspired word that is infallible and inerrant. This morning you take that word and you speak into our hearts. Remind us truly of who we are, who we are in your love. If you'd be so kind as to hide me behind the cross, make the only thing that's seen today you and all of your glory. Make very little of me and very much of you. All this we pray in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, you know, we started uh, looking at this next word there in, in this particular lineup of words that are given to us about the worthy walk. And that word that we looked at last week was forbearing love. We've coming off of that humbleness that we talked about where we think of ourselves less and others more and that meekness which is the power under control within us and that that meekness is that control of of God over the power in our lives the power of the Holy Spirit so they move the Holy Spirit to move from there into uh, patience basically I love to define patience I told you last week about offering grace because you have been graced it's in other words it's it's understanding what God has done for you, and in that you're able to offer patience to other folks and offer that grace to them. And then he moves there from those words, and in your, your uh, translations probably say something like lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering for humbleness, meekness, and patience. And he moves to that next group of words and says, bearing with one another in love. And last week we talked about this love And this love actually can be in three parts, as we spoke about last week, or three different kinds of love, each of which are symbolized in the Bible, if not necessarily used word for word. Those are the eros love, the phileo love, and then that agape love. And last week we started on the eros love, and I gave you some examples of what that was out of the Old Testament. And I found it kind of interesting because nobody came up to me afterwards except for one person actually in, in talking. And I'm not even sure they had recognized it, just kind of caught on. They said, well, Pastor, you used a lot of scripture last week talking about love, but you never used that Greek word eros in any of those, those passages. And it's true. And there's a reason. Eros doesn't appear in the Bible. The word itself does not appear in the Bible. But 
the idea of that eros love appears in the Bible, and most times it comes out in our translation from the other words that are used as, as lust and, and self-centeredness. So we talked about last week through eros, through the Old Testament, and we, we wound up there in the, the book of Galatians. So I'm just going to back up and punt and kick from Galatians and see where we can go from there. But it's Galatians chapter 5 is where we, we wound up last week as we were ending down in uh, uh, verse uh, 16 through 21 is where we're at. We're just going to look at 19 through 21 as to get a running start into this next uh, section of this heiress love. So in verse 19, it says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, uh, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, ambitions, uh, Murders, drunkenness, reveries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you notice the one thing that that list has in common, all of those things? Do you see the commonness in all of those things when he mentions that uh, adultery and fornication and lewdness and sorcery and jealousy and outburst? Do you know what's connecting all of those things together? It's self-centeredness. It's self-centeredness. And I told you last week, this eros love that is so demonstrated in the Bible in so many places and so condemned by Jesus, this eros love is actually a love that can best be understood as a love that takes. It's this love that takes. Do you see the taking in that list? For a person to desire to be adulterous to their wife means that they're not getting what they think they deserve in a marriage, so they want to take it from somewhere else. If a person decides they they want to have this uh, idolatry, they say, well, God's not enough for me. I've got this thing I idolize. It can be anything from your job to sports to whatever it may be. But you can say, God's not giving me what I need, so I'm going to take it from somewhere else. When you look down through it, it even says selfish ambitions there in verse 20. Selfish ambitions. How many of us are so driven to succeed in this world that we want to be at the top of our game? We want to be on the A-list. We want to be the best at what we do. And our selfish ambition puts God to the side sometimes and takes what we want from the world. That's a picture of this heiress love. A picture of this heiress love is we love to do those things, to take those things that satisfy us. Not ever thinking what it does to the other person. Think about adultery in a marriage. Think about how it not only upsets your marriage, not only ruins your life, it not only ruins the life of your spouse, but it ruins the life of whoever you're taking from. And that heiress love, that's the picture that this heiress love gives. Let's look at a couple of examples this morning in the limited time we have together. And I'm going to give you a picture of, of Jesus dealing with this heiress love. Flip back to Matthew 14 with me. Matthew 14. I'm going to take you through a, a couple of uh, successive uh, scriptures here through Matthew. And let's look at the people's reaction to this, this one who loved them so much. You know, even those who don't believe that Jesus is their Savior believe that God's a God of love. You hear it a lot. You, you talk to people and say, well, I can't believe that God would condemn or send people to a place called hell. I told you last week, God doesn't send you anywhere, but he'll allow you to choose your destination. I have people tell me all the time, I, I can't believe in a God that has wrath. I can't believe in a God that does those things because the God that I see is this God of love. They may not even know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but all they want to see from God is this God of love. Remember, Jesus is walking among the people. 
For some 30 years, he's living there. For three years, he's, he's in, in, in desperate ministry with them, right in the midst of them doing things. He's healing people. He's, he's raising people from the dead. He's, he's doing all kinds of miracles. And, and we see here in Matthew 14, um, as we flip over to about the 13th verse, we see one of the greatest miracles that he did for an abundance of people. Oftentimes we see Jesus when he's doing his miracles, when he's loving on folks, he's doing it on an individual basis. Here in this 13th verse of Matthew 14, it reads like this. It says, when Jesus heard it. Now, what did Jesus hear? If you know anything about the 13th chapter, if you know anything about the 13th chapter, John the Baptist, uh, or the 14th chapter, John the Baptist in the very first part of the 14th chapter is beheaded. So Jesus is coming off of this, this information about John the Baptist being killed. Now, who was John the Baptist for Jesus? He was not only kin to him, but John the Baptist was his forerunner, if you remember. John the Baptist was the one that went out into the desert and said, coming behind me, coming behind me is going to be the savior of the world. Repent now. Coming behind me is going to be one greater than me. Even made the statement, the one that coming behind me is so great, I can't even stoop down and unlace his sandals. Said, you're following me, John the Baptist said, but don't follow me for there's one coming that's greater. So for Jesus, this John the Baptist had been the proclaimer of Jesus' ministry. Now Jesus hears this, this news that John the Baptist, not only my kinfolk, but my forerunner, the one who spread the good news of was coming has been killed. And it says when he heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Any wonder why he was headed to a deserted place by himself? Look at the news he had just heard. I'm sure his heart was broken. I'm sure he wanted to spend time with God alone, his father. He wanted to do as he often did and retreat to the garden. If you remember, we see him oftentimes in the garden pouring his heart out to his father. He wanted to go somewhere in silence and reflect, I'm sure, on John the Baptist. Reflect on what was going on in, in this world of his around him. And it says, but when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from cities. I think it's interesting that it tells us that Jesus gets in a boat, which would give us indication he's crossing a lake or a sea at some point. And it says those that followed him followed on foot. Which meant he probably beat him by a little while, wouldn't you think? He probably took the direct route. He wound up and he had spent time with his father, I'm sure, before this multitude ever arrived. He had spent time with his father, hearing from his father in, in one of these humanly uh, darkest moments of his life when someone he loved so dearly had been killed. And it says, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. It gives me indication that Jesus must have been alone there, maybe in that garden area, maybe somewhere off to the side. And when he came out of wherever he was, there surrounding him was this multitude of people. Jesus had gone to be by himself, and when he comes out, there's this multitude there. And it says, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. It says that Jesus, when he come out from spending time with his father, communing with his father, being loved on by his father, when he walked out, there was this multitude of people that were gathered, and his heart was moved for them. And he understood among them were those that were sick. And it says that he healed the sick. We read it and think maybe that he stood up before them and said, all of you who are sick, be healed. And the whole bunch was healed. That's more than likely not what happened because we don't see Jesus doing that anywhere else in Scripture. I'm sure he went around one by one, seeing the one that was lame and, and praying for them and taking them by the hand and saying, get up, you can walk. 
seeing the one that was blinded, he would stop like he did at other times. Maybe he stooped down and, and again spit in the mud and, and made a paste and put their eyes like he had done in the past and, and said, you're healed. Maybe he had stopped by a person who was deaf and, he, and placed his hands over his ears and prayed to that father he had just been communing with and said, Father, take away their deafness and, and they were healed. See, we read it and we think you just stepped out and said, you're healed. No, Jesus spent time with these folks. Jesus spent this time with them wandering around and, and there was a great multitude and it says that he was moved. Matter of fact, it says the next verse, when it was evening, his disciples came to him. Apparently he spent all afternoon, all day amongst these people. All day he spent amongst the multitude loving on them, just healing them, reaching out to them in compassion. And you see this picture of Jesus in this group. And it says his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour, it's already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. I would like to think that we would be different had we have been with Jesus. I like to think that I would have been different. Look at what Jesus just did and look at the response of the ones closest to him. Do you not see a disconnect? Do you not find it amazing that they just see this man, as we're going to find out in a few minutes, walk around 5,000 men who had women and children that weren't counted in the Scripture, so some say as many as 15,000 have gathered there, he just walked amongst 15,000 people, healing the lame, the blind, the sick, the deaf, healing people. <laughs> the disciples go up and said, they're probably going to get hungry in a few minutes. You might want to send them home. <laughs> I would like to think I'd be different. I would like to think that I would just have seen Jesus do all those things that he did and say, if he can do that, I'm not worried about a happy meal. We'll be good. But look at their response to him. They see him do all these things, the compassion pour out of him on all these people and him love on them. And their response is, don't you think it's about time we get them to go home? They're probably going to get hungry in a few minutes and they're going to need something to eat. And they've got a long ways to walk because we're out here in the desert, desert area, the deserted area. Don't you think we should send them home? <laughs> I find it interesting when Jesus said to them in verse 16, they don't need to go away. <laughs> <laughs> understatement of the century. If you really think about what Jesus just did, he looked at us and said, why do they need to go anywhere? He even looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. <laughs> You're talking about being called on the carpet for unbelief. Jesus called them on the carpet in front of 15,000 people. He said, you're worried about them eating? So worried? You feed them. I find it interesting then, and he goes on and says that they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. You know by the accounts in the other stories, in the other Gospels, if you read the other accounts, that they were scrambling trying to figure out what they were going to do for food. They run across this little boy who had been smart enough in the whole bunch to say, I'm going to bring a sack lunch with me. He was probably like me and Punk. As we go along, we don't mind going and doing things. We're going to make sure we've got a little food with us in the process so we don't come up short. And this little fellow, I could just see him now. He had his little pail full of, of, of food. And, and as they were told, you feed him. The 12 probably scattered. <laughs> we got to find something. We got to find something. Jesus just told them, we've got to feed them. And they come back with this one little pail. Can't you see them with their tail between their legs? <laughs> they come back to Jesus and say, hey, hey Jesus, uh, 
we have here uh, five loaves and two fish. And can't you see some of them looking around going, this is going to be a riot. There, we're going to have people fighting for these five little pieces of bread here, these couple of little fish. We're going to have a problem. And Jesus very calmly just looked at him and says, bring them here to me. He goes on to say, then he commanded the multitudes to sit down in the grass. To us, we read right past that. We don't think much about it. But this crowd apparently had been watching Jesus every move. As he moved, they moved. The crowd probably shifted. They probably went everywhere that Jesus walked. This bunch was trying to get close to him. Nobody sat down because they wanted to be the next in line to Jesus. They wanted to be the next in line to get that which they needed. They followed Jesus around. And Jesus gets this and he just looks at the crowd and says, Folks, have a seat. The whole crowd just sits down in this grassy area. What an amazing thought to me to think that now he's going to take this little bit of food, this little bit of substance, he's going to take this multitude of people and ask them to be seated. And he's getting ready to do what is probably one of the greatest public miracles for masses that he did in, in the Bible. And it says he tells them to sit down and he took the five loaves and two fish and he looked up to heaven. Remember what he was doing before they showed up. Remember where he was. His heart was broken. He had gone to be by himself for one reason, spend time with his father. His father had poured into him his love, I'm sure at that time, and comforted him humanly because Jesus humanly felt things that we feel now, felt the fact that John the Baptist had passed, and he had spent time being loved on by the Almighty God privately. And now he has this opportunity. He takes these fish and these loaves, and it says he looked to heaven, to his Father. It says he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. I find it interesting how God works. How many disciples are there? Twelve. Twelve. How many disciples thought that they had an issue when it came to feeding the crowd? Twelve. They were all in it together. How did Jesus just prove to them that they didn't need to worry about anything? He fed all of them and said, why don't you boys take a basket home with you? I left a whole basket full for each of you. Could you, is that not just one of the most humble? I read it and I go, Jesus has done that to me. I've called him up a little short and didn't think he was capable. When it was all said and done, he left the leftovers for me just to prove that he is still God. He fed the entire 5,000 with this little basket of food and it left each of the 12 doubting disciples a basket to take home. What an amazing thought. I thought you'd all jumped out of your pews and yelled amen when that came up. Maybe it's just me. I'm crazy like that. It says in verse 21, Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And that's where they taken. say for each man there probably was a woman. For each man and woman there may have been a child or two. And there was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10, 15, 20,000. But you know what? It doesn't matter to me if it was just the 5,000 men or if it was 10 men or if it was our congregation. If he could take that little bit of food and feed this bunch, I would be just as as shocked and awed as him feeding 15,000 people. What an awesome thing. So we see this group. We see this whole group that have been physically healed, just had their their lives changed. They, 
They had been fed miraculously. The, the disciples had been shocked and awed at, at this person they had been following for some time. You, you see this miracle. You would think then, wouldn't you think that this crowd would just really fall in love with Jesus? Wouldn't you think they would say, wow, I've got to just get, I've got to know this guy. Well, you notice as it moves on, the very next section, it says in verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side. So he sent them away, them and their 12 baskets, probably loaded this boat up and sent them off. And it says, and he, while they left, he sent the multitude away. He said, you guys go on home. The show's over. I've, I'm going to be by myself. And it says, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. I find it very interesting. We started this passage with Jesus going up on the mountain to pray. We see him coming into this multitude and healing folks. We see bread and, and fish brought to him. And again, he stops and looks up to his Father in heaven and prays. He blesses it. When everybody's satisfied, when everybody's content, he sends the disciples away with their 12 baskets and a boat across the sea. Jesus turns to the multitude and sends them away. And he goes one more time to spend time with his Father and pray. Now when evening came, it says he was alone there in verse 23 and verse 24. The book, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. You know this story. You know this particular story. It's where they're out there and this boat's being tossed and beaten. And they look up through the storm and what do they see? They see Jesus. No boat. Just coming across the top of the waves. Walking on them as if they were steps. Here they're fearing for their life, these 12 disciples that have just been proven that Jesus is at least pretty powerful, if not God himself, and they're scared to death in this little boat, and here comes Jesus, just peacefully walking across the waves. You know how the story goes. He, as he approaches, it tells us down in verse 28 that Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And you know what he does. He looks at Peter and he says, come on, here I am, come get me. And he bails out of the boat. A few minutes out on the water, Peter suddenly loses sight of Jesus and starts focusing on those waves and wind and the turmoil around him. You know what happens. He sinks. That faith that had just been so lifted up that he had seen 15,000 people fed off a basket lunch. That faith that left a basket for him at the end, that faith that had been so bolstered because he'd seen people healed, that faith had dwindled, and he sinks. But before he drowns, Jesus pulls him back. Jesus pulls him back. Then he moves down into verse 34. Look at verse 34. It says, when all of this has happened, keep in mind, he had healed those in amongst the 15,000. He had fed those 15,000. He had saved Peter from drowning. He had, he had gotten him to the other side of the shore because he had calmed the storm and said, there they are. It says in verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennaraset. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many touched it were made perfectly well. I find this interesting. 
some of those men were probably some of the ones that have been on the opposite side of the sea. If not, word traveled pretty quick. They couldn't text or cell phone or anything because nobody had those things in those times. So apparently, while the storm process was going on on the sea, someone had made it back around to where they were headed to spread the good news. When Jesus arrives, it says someone recognized him. Someone recognized him. My question to you is, what did they recognize about Jesus? Did they recognize he was God? Or did they recognize that he was the meter of their needs, their supplier? See, because if you look at what it says, it says that when they recognized him, in verse 45, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged that they might only touch the hem of his garment. I would like to think we're different. But you know what these people saw in Jesus? They saw someone that when they had a hurt in their life and a pain in their life, a disability in their life, when there was something that they couldn't handle, they could reach out to this Jesus and take just the piece they needed to fix that problem in their life. And they could go back home and not worry about Jesus again. See, for nobody fell at his feet saying, you are truly Lord. Nobody fell at his feet and grabbed a hold of him as we see at his death when when the lady just wanted to hold so tight to him because he was God. We see them just saying, I have this challenge that Jesus fella can meet it and I want to take a piece of whatever that is, just a touch of his garment. I don't really want to know him. I just want to touch his garment so whatever it is about me that's physically wrong can be changed. I'd like to think we were different. Many of us as Christians are not. See, this Eros love speaks directly to the heart of those people. See, they weren't looking for a savior. They were looking for a fix. All they wanted was to have that one little need in their life met. They didn't want to come before this Jesus and get to know him. They didn't want to spend time. They didn't want to give up all those things that they had to follow him and be a part of their ministry. They just wanted to reach out and touch to him with his garment. So whatever it was in their life that was all messed up would be right again. And they could slip away without ever having to commit anything to this Jesus. You see, they move over into verse, in chapter 15. Jesus hits the congregation of the church head on with this example. It says very quickly in 15, 15, chapter verse number one, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your uh, disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So what are these Pharisees and Sadducees? Who are these guys? They're the religious leaders. They're the ones in charge of this thing called church. They're the pastors and the deacons. They're the ones who set forth what should be done in a church. You know, we take up the offering at a certain time in a pretty little gold plate, and we sit quietly in our pews, and we make sure that the sound's just right, and, and, and we make sure that, you know, there's somebody to greet you at the door and give you a bulletin. Or there's all these things that we do that I dare say if we take one of those things out, somebody will want to meet with me after church and ask why. If I came in one Sunday and you came through the door and whenever you sat down, I didn't say, turn to him such and such. I looked at you and said, open your Bibles and stand with me as we read. We're just going to preach this morning. You'd want to talk to me after church. 
If I had a church service and I ended the church service and it convicted you so much whenever we ended that you wanted to come down and talk to someone. But whenever I ended, I just shut my Bible and said, that's our message for today. Stand up and prayed with you and dismissed you and didn't have an invitation at the end for you to come down front and feel better about yourself. You'd want to talk with me at the end. And that's what he's saying to these guys here in just a few minutes. They came to him and said, look, there's these things that you've got to do. You can't worship God if you don't stop and wash your hands over here, man. You can't be worshiping God if you don't take up the offering in the middle. You can't worship God if you don't sing a hymn. You can't worship God if we don't stand up and sit down a few times. If we don't list things on the board. If we don't take Sunday school attendance. You can't worship God if you don't do all those things. That's what they're saying. They're saying there's this tradition. We've always done it. What are you doing changing it, Jesus? Who do you think you are, God? <laughs> Found it kind of interesting because he was. <laughs> they looked at him and said, hey, what is, what's this you're teaching your disciples to disobey what we've done for centuries? Jesus answered in verse 3 and said, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your trans- tradition? Look at what he said. He said, you've made up your own little traditions, the little things that you've done, and what you've done with those has transgressed the law of Almighty God. He moves on to say very quickly, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to your father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift of God, then he need not honor his father or mother. In other words, what he's saying is, instead of taking those things that they had gained in their life and caring for their mom and dad, they had the audacity to say, no, those things that I've been given are a gift to God. You're going to have to find a way to support yourself because I'm so godly that all of these things are God. They started using God as that, hey, I think I can take this piece off the shelf and it'll allow me to keep all these things to myself because I can use that to explain why I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And he just confronts them right head on with it. He goes on to say, But you say, whosoever says to the father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And Jesus looks them in the eye, and I think at times looks us in the eye, and he says this word that makes me cringe. Hypocrites. I hear people all the time say, Pastor, I'd go to church, but that place is full of hypocrites. You know, I'd argue with them if I could. But I can't. Because we'll sit in here and we'll play the religious game. We'll put on the pretty little face that that belongs in church. We'll sit in here and say how much we love God. And we'll walk past a person on the street that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And we don't have the guts or the compassion to stop and share it with them. It's called a hypocrite. That's called not doing for others what God has done for you. It's an amazing thought to me to think that God has so blessed me that I'm going to be so selfish with it that I won't tell anybody else about that God who never runs out. Do you understand sharing Jesus with someone else takes nothing away from what he gave you? What he gave you is yours. If he has saved you from the pit of hell, you telling someone else how to be saved doesn't put you back in the pit of hell. It gives them an opportunity to get out of the same pit. When the world tells me the church is full of hypocrites, I have to agree. Why do I say that? Because we've got seats left over and there's plenty of room for folks here. If we were all doing what Christ has called us to do, me included, we would have standing room only. We really would. 
if we had the compassion to come out of a prayer closet with God and see a group of people that needed Jesus and walk amongst them and sharing, this place would be overwhelmed with folks wanting to see your Jesus. Right now they don't want to see your Jesus because they know on Sunday you're sitting in here and Monday you're acting just like them. He looks at us and he says, hypocrites. He doesn't stop there. He backs it up with this. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, and this is the prophecy that he hits him beside the head with, and I hope you hear this morning. It says in verse 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. This prophecy is saying that we sing all the right songs, we read all the right scriptures, we talk Christian amongst each other, we do all those things that we think a Christian should do. We talk right, we try to walk right, we try to wear the right suits, we try to be at church every week, we do all those things. He says, so the people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips, but their heart is far far from me. And it says, because their heart is far from me, verse 9, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctors the commandments of men. See, that's a great picture of Eros' love. Eros' love is trying to get from God those things that we want to fix whatever needs in our heart. You know, we've all been there. Some of us are there right now. Some of us in just the last 24 hours have reached out for something we needed from God, yet ignored him when he wanted us to do something with it. We've all been there. A lot of folks come to Christ through crisis in their life. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking to a, for a fix for the crisis. But when God's people show up and they help them with that crisis and share the love of God with them, it moves from this Eros love to what we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. But my concern this morning is, where's your love for God? Is it an Eros love? Let me very quickly just give you a couple of examples, not even going to talk about them. But your love for God just cannot stay as an Eros love. What does it look like? Eros love of God looks at God as your butler. I need you to heal me. I need you to provide for me financially. I need you to mend my marriage. I need you to get me out of this situation. I need, I need, I need. Is that where you stand with God this morning? Is the only time he ever hears from you is when you need something? You, an heiress love looks at God also as a genie. We all fall in this category. It's when I said, God, my car's broke down. I really need a new one. Or I sure would like to have a new house. Or I need a job making more money. I need a new boyfriend or girlfriend. Hopefully nobody's saying I need a new husband or wife. That's a different message for a different time. But, but that's that type of love that says, I want, I want, I want. But you know, an heiress love of God also looks at God as, as your lover. When I'm lonely, God, when there's nobody else there for me, I want to be able to reach out to you and feel you close by. You know, God, when I'm hurting, when there's a situation in my life, I want to know that you're going to comfort me. So, God, when, when everybody else is deserted, deserted me, I just want to know that I can turn to you. God, I just want to be able to sit down and just know you love me sometimes. You know, that all sounds very Christian, 
But if that's the only relationship that you've got with Jesus, then your love for God is nearest love. Because it's not about what you take from him. It's about what he gives to you. But most of the time in our life, we are looking to take, 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 both in our relationships here on earth and our relationships with our Heavenly Father. To love God with an heiress love is to only love God for what he can do for you. I'm going to read one scripture and give you an opportunity to respond to God's call this morning. Acts chapter 20. I was back in my study praying earlier about this message. As you can tell, it's near and dear to my heart. And Acts chapter 20, verse 35 came to mind and it says this. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Find it interesting. Paul here says, or Luke here says, those are the words of Jesus. Do you know those are nowhere else in the Bible? You can't find them being spoken in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where the life of Jesus is written. It's the only quote by Jesus that's quoted somewhere else in the Bible that was never placed in another place in the Bible. So do you think it's pretty important? This Dr. Luke, when he looked at Jesus, when he looked at his life, when he looked at what we were supposed to do in our relationship with God, his statement is, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you at times feel like maybe God's not as close as you would hope he is to you? Do you sometimes feel like you're missing the mark? Do you sometimes in your life just say, man, I look at these other folks and they're just so in love with Jesus and they're Jesus this and Jesus that and I, I just feel empty. I mean, you may know that you're saved beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Yet you can't remember the last time that you just loved him for who he is, not for what he can do for you. You see, we grow up in this world, this new culture, that's all about what can we get. With God, it's not about what can you get. It's about what has God chosen to give you. This morning, maybe you're living your life in that Eros love of God. If you really want to have a relationship where your heart is broken for the things that breaks God's heart, you can't have a one-way street where you're only taken from God. Maybe this morning that's where you're at. I'm going to say this even though I probably shouldn't. My wife is probably not in here so she won't get on me later. I've had folks say to me, I said, Pastor, you're always beating us up about not coming to the altar and praying. And you're right, I do. I do. As you can tell, I'm very emotional about God. Why? Because I can't believe that he would love a person like me. When I think about that love that he's poured out on me, when I know me, yeah, it makes me emotional. It really does. But you know what it does more than that? It makes me see those things in my life that are wrong, those things that don't bring him the honor he deserves for what he did. And I don't know about you, yeah, I could sit in that pew and ask for forgiveness. But when I do it, I know I'm doing it because I don't want anybody else to know that me and God aren't right. Do you know that's a sin also? Do you know as you sit there and you ask for forgiveness from God, but you're so proud you don't want anybody to know, you're asking for one sin while committing another one. 
When are you going to fall so in love with God that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks? When are you so going to know his love in your life that it just doesn't matter? This morning, I ask you, if God stirred your heart, you respond as you see fit. If you want to pray from where you're at, that's fine. If you want to come to the altar and pray, that's fine. If you want to come down and, and have me pray with you, that's fine. If the altar gets full, I'll ask the deacons, please keep your eye coming down and pray with those folks that may come this morning. You respond to God and repent. Ask for forgiveness if you've been living in that heiress love. Ask Him to move you towards an agape love with Him where you truly know the love of a Father. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.